why don't we go ahead and uh, get started and if people um, come in then they can join but um let's see we are in our six weeks of the series and um yeah I so a lot of you may know this but my other job is um, working for interfaith action in southwest Michigan which is a faith-based action uh, organization so as I was playing this series, I was thinking we need to we need to you know also move it towards the action um, focus and the practical focus because I think what we believe about wealth and poverty really does matter um, and the Christian tradition. And so um, one of the folks I thought of for this was Andre, uh, who's part of Faith in Indiana and has been doing amazing work around um, uh, incarceration and. Um, and in so many other areas. Actually, I'm looking forward to learning more myself and I'm hoping that St. James can get even more involved in your work. So I asked him to come and talk about wealth, poverty and faith-based action. And so thank you, Andre, for, for doing this. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's good to work together with Andre on a number of things and others in the congregation as well. Um, well, I'm really eager to talk about with you, think with you about wealth, poverty, and Christian social action, something like that. <laughs> so I'm just, you know, um, when you think about the values that are taught at church or adult ed classes or, social, or Sunday school, what are the values that are taught in, in church? At St. James Episcopal, what are the values that are important? Well, love your neighbor yourself. Neighbor as self. Yeah, I mean, is generosity one of the values? Yes. But but also taking care of yourself. That's stewardship, right? But I do. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Oh wow. Well. So I mean, you know, like share, sharing is sharing a value. I mean, that's related to money. It's you know, it's both like taking care of yourself and sharing. What are other values? One or two more. Uh, continuing, continuing in worship. So, different baptism will come in with me, continuing in the, um, yeah. Um, apostles teaching and fellowship. Yeah. What's that? Sorry. <laughs> continuing in the apostles teaching and fellowship. And breaking the bread. So, what does that mean? Show up for church. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be part of the community. Community. I was wondering, that was kind of what I was hearing. So, community, we're not just isolated individuals. So we love our, we love the community, each other. We live in community. We love our neighbors. We serve. We 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 take. We 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 earn and we share. Yeah. Okay. When you walk out your door in the morning, or when you walk out of the church doors, do you see these values at work in the world around us? Yes. Yes. Probably yes and no. What are say? say let's say some yes and then some no's. <laughs> I mean, arguably, I see some of these values outside of the church more than inside the okay. church. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, like where? Where do you see that? Um, I see it in a lot of um, uh, action-based uh, groups. Um, you might see it at the uh, LGBTQ center. Okay. Nate, Nate Warren and some other folks are part of a oh, great racial alliance against, against racism and, and political repression. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
and I, I think it's funny, like, because St. Martha's is right next to um, us, and, you know, like, I walk out of church, and I don't talk to any of the people that I might see, or I don't, like, try to get involved in St. Margaret's house. So I think that's one way that, like, it's a value in here, but do I necessarily bring it? So I'm going to push back here. just a little bit. Like, the LGBTQ Center, um, my daughter is lesbian, and she would not move to South Bend because it's an inhospitable place. And I think we have an LGBTQ center because people feel like they need solidarity and it's inhospitable. Yeah. And so I think these are groups that advocate for some of this. But when I look around the community, my daughter would say, this is not a place that I want to be. I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I know I was just driving to church. The wind was blowing the right way. So I could see one of the northern side flags flying in a, a house. And I'm like, when do you get to come home with black flags in a neighborhood where I know I see children playing every day that I'm going um, when did that become say, I, as profanity. It's one of the, you know, the, the, the current political oh, things. And yeah. when did that become okay? When I drive through that neighborhood on the way, there's always kids out playing basketball. Got it. Or Michigan Alliance Against Repression and Political Repression and Racism. Uh, you know, we had a, um, a man with schizophrenia, black man with schizophrenia, waved a toy gun, and uh, the police shot and killed him, execution style. And um, this is this is where I'm living, you know. Um, St. Margaret's House. We have chronic homelessness and people who are really struggling on the edge. It's awesome and amazing what happens there. But to me, it's a reflection that there's something not right. So I'm I'm asking, what would it look like if these values actually were at work, not just in individual service-oriented spaces, but actually in our community? What would it look like if there was welcome for queer uh, people in our community? What would it look like if there really, if this was a space where we had social, racial justice, what would it look like if there was security and safety for everyone, even those uh, really poor? What would that look like? And that's the ideal. That's the ideal. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, the ideal world for land for me isn't actually a thing. It's because like, it. we're all just doing it. It's, um, it's called tacky. It's called building a together instead of just relying on people being charitable and doing it for right. creating spaces for everyone else. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah. So I want to give one example that has become important in our work. You know, we've, we, we know mass incarceration is a huge issue. Um, we know that from the churches that we connect with and from our, you know, from other from personal experiences. At some point it became clear to me, became clear to us, our jail. First of all, it went from about 40 people in 1970 to now it's almost 700. 80% okay. of those people have substance use issues or mental health issues or some combination of the two. Our jail is our de facto detox center mm -hmm. in our county. Our jail is the place many people for the first time get mental health services. So does that look like this? <laughs> no. I mean, I think that's an outrage that our jail is the de facto detox center. I think that's an outrage and I am not willing to put up with that. Um, 
we have a family, friends, there were four families. We had supper together every week when our kids were very small. We all lived within the same neighborhood. Our kids are still best friends. The women of those four families still get together all the time. And um, last summer, my son, who is now, just had birthday, turned 19, he and one of the other boys in one of the families took a 500 mile bike ride. They drove, rode up to Sleeping Bear Dunes. Wonderful time. This kid is in our yard all the time, growing up all the time. Student at IU, mental health break, um, did something stupid. Police were called. He's been in the Monroe County Jail for the nine last nine months. Mm -hmm. And he is, um, he's not well, so he doesn't respond well. He's in solitary most of the time. This is a this is a terrible thing for him. You know, this is not what he needs. He, but this is our system. This is what happens to people. Um, and so um, this is and and story after story after story. We have family members, people we know and care about, um, who struggle with mental health issues or substance use, and either thank God they somewhere got the help, or you know something difficult happened to them and they're, they're still struggling. Um, so I'm gonna actually invite us to turn into our period. Is there somebody in your family or your circle of friends or people you know who struggle with mental health or substance use and you, you, you're, you're hoping or wishing or they have gotten the help or they need help and how, why, how's that working? How's our system working for them? So I'm gonna give us like two or three minutes to talk with each other, maybe four or five minutes to in twos or threes, a little bit about if, if, you're, if you're comfortable with that uh, about uh, somebody you know or care about who has struggled with some of these issues. Okay, I'm going to invite us back into the circle. Um, you know, one of the realities about things like this, um, we are taught that it's your own damn fault that you're struggling and that there's a lot of shame and shame isolates us. So one of the things that keeps us powerless is the shame we carry, but it also takes courage to share the struggles that we have or the people we care about. So I'm not trying to twist anybody's arm, but if somebody has a story they'd like to share or a reflection from this brief sharing, I'd welcome that. In any of these kinds of situations, there's often a tension, or maybe it's between the choices people make and the structures and systems in which they make those choices or in which they function. And I'm just going to say, maybe um, this is a little simplistic, but conservatives tend to say, they just need to make the right choices. They screwed themselves over. If they would have done that, that, that. And choice is important. People make choices. And progressives tend to say, the systems are all screwed up. You know, um, and systems are important. <laughs> and so one of the ways I think about it is, but our culture as a whole tends to think about everybody is an individual and they make their choices. And we don't think about the fact that, wait a minute, we don't have a detox center. Like if my nephew is struggling, like what's he supposed to do? Ride to Ohio or something? Come on, what's going to happen here? So one of the ways I like to think about it is, we want to create a world in where it's easier for people to make good choices, <laughs> where we have systems and structures in place that support people and that give people the resources they need. Um, so, um, 
you know, thank you for thank you for sharing those stories. And there'd be a lot more we could explore. One one we're talking about poverty, and I think there's all kinds of poverty. People people on the margins, people on the edge, people who are struggling, and there's an overlap between uh, a lot of these issues. Um, I'm just gonna I I, I preached the sermon once at Kern, where I was pastor Kern of Mennonite Church, uh, pastor outreach. And uh, it was on Advent, and there was text from Isaiah 11, and part of it was that, you know, the, the ruler shall be judged by the way the poor are do doing. And I'm going to say, in Indiana, the poor are not doing very well. Indiana, and it was for this sermon that I did a little research, and I realized, in Indiana, for most of the last two decades, teacher pay raises has been 50th. We've been 50th in teacher pay raises. We're 49th. In pollution. We're 45th in incarceration. We are 42nd in mental health, 42nd in infant mortality, 40th, I think, in public health, 37th in opioid addictions. It goes on and on. We're at the very bottom on all of these indicators. Are, are Hoosiers just bad people? Like, you know, did God want it that way? No, this is, this is, this is a, a consequence of decisions that have been made in our state, local communities and in our state. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest, I'm gonna, I'm gonna connect this to the issue of poverty and wealth. And this is really interesting that you guys had this question with Jesus poor and so on and so forth. Um, I'm gonna suggest part of the reason Indiana is so bad, so much at the bottom in all these places has to do with issues of poverty and wealth and who gets to decide who has power, okay? And this is a little bit of a reframing. I grew up in a kind of a context where, you know, live simply so that others can simply live and um, feel like most of my clothes came from Goodwill and I was in my Mennonite voluntary service and, you know, and feel a little bit guilty about being a middle-class white guy and, you know, this, this kind of stuff, okay? And, and empathy for people who are less fortunate, okay? I, in the last couple of years, I've had a fundamental rethinking of that, and I want to share that with you. I think a fundamental lie that we tell ourselves, most of us in this room, is if you're white, you're all right. So I think there's an intersection between the issue of poverty and wealth um, and, and race. So if you're white, you're all right. What? Let's just tease that out. What might that mean? I don't have to talk if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but, um, so I, it, it's kind of a way for communities, um, or at least one of the ways I see it is for a way for communities to um, include and exclude. Um, mm. So we were one of the only uh, families in my neighborhood, which was like a very well off. Uh, mostly white neighborhood. Um, my dad is from India. He's very tired. Um, and he, uh, he was actually stopped by a police officer saying, you know, you don't belong here. Yeah, no, literally. Wow. And he had to say, you know, no, I don't part of the name. So I think, you know, if you're white, you're all right. And if you're not white, then you don't belong mm here. -hmm. So yeah, so it distinguishes. Yeah. I'm going to suggest here that um, I'm white. At least that's what I'm told. I identify as white. I'm identified as white. It's a made up fictional thing, but you know, okay, we're gonna live, we're gonna have to, but it is not all right that my kids' teachers don't get pay raises. That is not all right. 
It is not all right that this is 49th in pollution, the state. That is not all right. And I don't care if I'm white, black, brown, I don't care. It is not all right that this, this state is 42nd in mental health. But we as white people often accept the lie that I'm white. It's actually going pretty well for me. I fell off my bicycle uh, eight weeks ago. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if I blacked out or what happened. I ended up, uh, I was on a bike lane. Thank God I had a helmet. I ended up in the ER. I was blacked out for four minutes. I had a concussion. I ended up in the ER. I got stitches. I just this week got my medical bill. Yeah. I fell off my bicycle. I had a helmet on. I was on about $20,000. And I have to pay about $4,500 of it. That's not all right. <laughs> and I'm white. Okay. That's what that happened. That would be devastating. Our daughter had an um, anaphylactic reaction last year, beginning of the year. So it was an ambulance ride. It was an ER. It was overnight in the hospital. And we looked at the, the, the non-insurance reduced rate. It was close to $60,000. I mean, thank goodness at that point she was still on her father's insurance. Amazing. Yes, exactly. So I'm going to say it is a lie to say if you're white, you're all right. Okay, that is a lie. And we believe that lie as white people as a way to separate ourselves and to, from other people. So let's do a little historical work here. And I do think this intersects with, with race very significantly. Um, think about 17th century Virginia, plantation owners, slaves, indentured servants, free blacks, white craftspeople, okay? Huge, huge, huge imbalance of power and wealth. People who own thousands of acres and people who are scrabbling it out, okay? Um, apparently in the early 1600s in um, in, in colonial Virginia, there was actually a lot of interrelationship between black and white and European settlers, indentured servants, there was intermarriage, there was socialization, okay? How many of you have ever heard of Bacon's Rebellion? So in 1676, I think 30% of the population rose up against these plantation owners. And they said, holy shit, they put it down. And then they figured, we gotta, we gotta do something. And that is where the categories of race were introduced. For the first time, it was really, it became illegal to intermarry, for example. Yeah. Well, whiteness is a term based on exclusion. It's based around the idea that you, your whiteness is directly to, uh, is directly related to what is the exclude, what part you want to exclude. So for the first time, the word white actually showed up in, in, in the legal codes. And it's exactly what you're saying. It, it was, it became, it's an over against, I'm not black. So what happened is um, uh, there, there was a distinct, a separation between black and white and the, the rights of, of African descendants was dramatically decreased. The rights of whites was slightly raised, and they were led to believe that their interest was with the plantation owners who were way up there. That's what happened. They became, they got to, when they, when they entered their indentured servitude, they got to have guns and they got to be 
slave patrols, for example, and these and African American people's rights were dramatically reduced. Okay. Yes. Well, isn't like that 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 directly leads to the discussion of intersectionality just in general, it's that the fact that we have to think about multiple factors when it comes to that. Because even like in modern day time, like it's like queer people, right? It's like white cis gay men have more rights than a black trans woman. Um, and that is, you know, it's important to understand, even if we are moving forward on things, there's still... We have yeah. to see the solidarity. And, 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 and constantly, people are being pushed to pit, pit each other against, being pit against each other, whether it's around sexuality, race, well, absolutely. So today, so today, um, I, did a, I did a sermon at Kern once. It was about income inequality. Uh, that and wealth inequality that uh, between what, what happened from like, I think it was 19, it was an exercise from the Catholic campaign to human development. I got it. So it's, it's been a while between like 1970 and about 2005. Okay. So I think we had people line up one, one person for each 10th of a pop of the population. And everybody was lined up. This was your wealth in 1970. And then uh, people, the lowest 10%. What happened to your wealth? Oh, we got our percentage decreased. The next is like, oh, we went forward two steps before you said the top 10%. Okay, you're going to take 6,464 steps. So you go out the sanctuary, through the fellowship hall, through the parking lot, and into the neighboring subdivision. That is what happened. That is what happened. Now, the exact, I don't remember how many steps it was, but it was, it was dramatic like that. In the United States, right now, point. 1% of the population, 160,000 households have as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Okay. The heirs to the Walton family, that's uh, Walmart, have as much wealth as the bottom 42% of Americans. So when we're talking about rich and poor, we're not talking about like I'm middle class and I earn seventy five thousand dollars and I'm relating to twenty thousand dollars. No, you know what that is? That is the lie that happened back in Bacon's Rebellion. Like actually, I'm different than them. No, we should be together saying, "What is going on? Six families own forty two percent of the wealth of the American." You know, or here's another statistic, and this has been connected to political power in two thousand sixteen. 0.01% of Americans, 24,949 super wealthy Americans accounted for 40% of all campaign contributions. This is from- um, Can you say that one more time? Uh, basically 25,000 super wealthy Americans, 0.01% of the population accounted for 40% of the campaign contributions. So in other words, a very small group of people have inordinate political power. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a you know a, a wealthocracy or something like that. I mean, Robert Reich, former Treasury Secretary, he wrote a book called uh, "The System and How It Works." Who read it or something like that? And a lot of this information, the system, who read it and how how we fix it. So what I'm suggesting is, in terms of wealth, we I don't think anybody here is in the plantation owner class. But we have largely accepted the idea that 
you know, it's going all right for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I'm not a, a, an African-American slave, you know, or descendant of the slaves. I mean, back in, I'm saying like in the 1680s, you know, and I'm all right. And we, but I, I aspire to be wealthy. If I could just, you know, I get work a little harder, get that degree, get that lucky break. As a, and so we've accepted, we've been, we've allowed ourselves to be pitted against each other. And we have, we have, we are blind to the fact that there is an amazing inequality in terms of wealth and poverty in our country. I'm just going to pause there. <laughs> Thoughts? Yes? Um, so, no, I I always think about this, that, like, how, like, I, I grew up, like, my friends, because of, like, what side of uh, the main street that we lived on, but all my family rich. Yes. But at the, and, and like that's true. Like I, we were very, very privileged. But I always grew up conscious of the fact that we were one disaster away. Because like we, like even though people didn't know, like I knew that our finances were stuck. So we were one disaster away from losing our house. And so like I, I always think about this, like how we're pitted against each other. Exactly. And it's like no, we're we're all just at the mercy of you know all of these billionaires. So if we're gonna have change. It's going to take multiracial, multi-faith solidarity among poor and working class and middle class people to say this system is not working for anybody except the super wealthy. Even if you're white, it's not working for you. I mean, yeah, I can run by. I can find that $4,500 to pay my medical bill. Oh, my God, that's a pain. And... My kids did all right because we don't, you know, school is not the, the only way they get their education. But the reality is our teachers aren't getting paid enough. We don't have the health care we need. Jail is our de facto detox center. It's not working for any of us, except for the super wealthy who with climate change are trying to figure out how they can get to Mars or have a spaceship where they're going to be safe or an island somewhere where, you know, I mean, this is reality. So even the people that you would look at and say, okay, they're, you know, that they're, you know, the doctors, dentists, lawyers that, that earn great money, yes. but they've had to mortgage at least 10 to 25 years of their, in order to get to that point. I mean, if you, if you want doctors and dentists to provide health care, there needs to be a better system there too. There's a great book. There, absolutely. There's a great book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And her basic question is, why can't we in America have nice stuff? Like, why can't I have health insurance that actually works? Why can't I have a school for my kids that's really top quality? I mean, why can't we have, why do we have chronic homelessness? Why do we have gun violence when we do? And her basic answer in the end is racism because we've allowed ourselves to be pitted against each other. And there's a, if you just read, I think it's the introduction or the opening chapter, it's the story of, of um, swimming pools. America used to have amazing swimming pools. In some cities, I think it was like St. Louis, thousands of people every summer, but it was white people. And when desegregation happened and they were forced to integrate in city after city, they actually filled concrete, filled the swimming pools with concrete. And people, white people moved to the burbs, had their uh, little fancy clubs and private swimming pools. But but poor, poor white people, they have no place to swim anymore. Black people. So this is this is a, a metaphor for why we in America cannot have white stuff. And she goes through 
housing, education, healthcare, system after system, where we have been allowed to be pitted against each other. And we, white people who think it's all, white is all right, have kind of said, well, I hope maybe sometime I'll get rich. And we have not fought together for the kind of change we need. So um, I want to talk a little bit about faith in Indiana. <laughs> um, there are many ways to work for social change. Uh, a key way that we work for social change is service, or we work, it's, it's not so much for change, but it's to address the victims and the needs that arise through a messed up system. Okay. Although a lot of times we don't have that kind of analysis, service can be also very paternalistic. And that, you know, so it's a complicated thing, but service, acts of mercy, compassion, this is important, this is central, okay? Service. Um, education, you know, like if we would all just understand more and have a better awareness, this is important. Advocacy, we are speaking on behalf of others. Um, policy experts, protest, all of these are important. I think in my tradition, we love service, if we get political, we tend to go with protest. And protest is largely, in the end, it is absolutely critical and necessary and essential at a few moments. But in the end, it's actually a posture of powerlessness. I am out in the street because I cannot get to the negotiating table. I can't get to the table where they're actually making the decision. So I just hope that there are enough of us that the newspaper writes a story and the people are actually making decisions somehow get impacted. And maybe the CEO's daughter is in that crowd and maybe she goes home and she tells her dad how bad he is or something. I don't know. But it's actually, it's actually a position of power because we're not at the table. So faith in Indiana works at social change. And all of those are important and have their place. I'm not saying they don't. But faith in Indiana works out of a tradition of community organizing. And the key issue, the key dynamic that is at the heart of community organizing, which often is not in these other approaches, is an analysis of power, building power. How do we have enough power that our voice will be take will be heard? Building power. So it's a question. I'm going to ask this question, provocative question. Do you want to be a powerful person whose voice is heard? Do you want to be a powerful person whose voice is heard by James Miller, who just walked by here? <laughs> Do you, St. James Episcopal Church, want to have a powerful voice in the public arena so that you are not just supporting, helping uh, a day shelter, helping women who are struggling, but you are actually changing the policies and the priorities and the budgets that impact the options and, and, and the choices that they have? That is the question. Do you want to have power? Many groups don't want power. Many groups don't think about power. Many groups are very suspicious of power. In my own tradition, the Mennonite tradition, if you are, too, we, we know we're right. Like we know that Jesus, <laughs> Jesus did not kill people and you should not go to war. We know that, you know, now, but um, we're glad to be totally ineffective on the outside with protest sign and to be right and, and not have an impact. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, if we're too effective, it's we're suspicious. You must have sold out. So, so they're actually in our movement. Sometimes there are there is a and there's a hesitation about power. I think power is neutral. 
power, we have had experiences with power that's negative. It's dominating power. And so we're, we're, we're suspicious about that. Donnie used to be my next door neighbor. <laughs> I think he's part of the community, right? Yeah. Um, and um, we're suspicious of power. Power is though just the ability to act. So we talk about power with, not power over. And, and it's important that we check ourselves as we build power. So what are the sources of a group like us? How do you build power? What, how, can you, how can you become powerful so that, you're, so that James Mueller doesn't just have to say nice, but actually has to follow through and do what? And, and actually, first of all, has to meet with you. That's not the problem. And secondly, has to actually say, you know what? I think I better do that. How do, you, how do we build power? What are the sources of power? Broad representation in your community. Okay, so you, representation, what does that mean? You need people from all walks of life in okay. South Bend. So many, di many different faith traditions or other traditions, no traditions. So first of all, I hear you say, okay, representation, even before the diversity, it's just like people have right? numbers, right? If it's like three people, uh, a Jew, a Catholic, and a Episcopalian, but you don't have any, you don't represent anybody, it's just for three people, right? But so, so <laughs> people power, so numbers, and it gives you credibility and strength if you represent the breadth of the community, right? What else? Somebody access. Access? Yeah. And, you're, you, you can, and you can have all the meetings you want, but if you don't have access to people that are already in power, then... How do you get access? I don't know. Um, I'm going to suggest that access is important, but it's easy to get confused. Okay. Access and power. Okay. Um, so this is a time-honored strategy, for example, in the Black Church. There are multiple strategies. But one strategy is I'm a pastor and I, 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 become, I build a relationship and I have access to this political person and I can get favors and goodies that I can hand out and distribute. But it's different than saying, I got 4,000 people here who are going to who are going to talk to you and who are going to vote and who are going to hold you accountable. That's power. That, that's yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you need the courage to do that. So I think that's one of those the courage to be seen as political. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and I, I felt it in myself. I I feel like I um identify as an activist on a lot of things, but in church, I'm like, well, you know, we don't want the church involved in like well, these political things, but that's not true. The church is inherent. So oh, so oh no. So I was just saying I think yeah. that's the courage part. So I'm gonna I, I'm aware of our time. And so I'm going to just say a little bit about how we work in Faith in Indiana and then a couple of invitations and then respond to this issue. Um, so Faith in Indiana, basically, we are at this point in St. Joe, we're, we're about six counties across the state. We have a vision for changing Indiana because what happens in Indianapolis at the state house impacts what we can do here dramatically. And we're learning about that. But we are rooted in very local county chapters. So in St. Joe County, at this point, we're roughly 25 congregations. And we work at building relationships. Our power, we say, power is in the relationship. That's one of our, you know. Um, so, for example, um, 
when I was a, a pastor, uh, so pastor, I want to be in, in relationship with black churches. Um, how do I do that? I was in committees and so on where, um, uh, where I uh, would see black pastors, but I didn't have any relationship. And I realized here's a tool. If I spend 45 minutes a week in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a black pastor, not just chit-chat, not just by biography, like what do you care about? Getting after a year, I have a relationship with 50 black pastors. And I cannot do any work with somebody unless I know them. And especially unless I know something about what they care about, that's important to them. So power is in the relationship. And that's true within our congregations and between congregations. So we do a lot of relational work. Then we 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 do uh, we 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 listen. What are the things that people care about? I'm, I'm giving it to you in a little bit of an ideal form, right? It's not always that neat and clean, but we listen. What are the issues that people care about? And then we we talk about we cut an issue. We go from a problem, problem, mass incarceration. What's a specific solution that is doable? That will make it won't solve the problems of the world, but it will make a significant difference in people's lives. And there is a decision maker who can make it happen, or a small group of decision makers. And we have enough power to get that person or that group to do the right thing, or we can build enough power. So mass incarceration, how am I gonna do that? I don't know. But crisis response center between Mishawaka South Bend and the county, we got 120 million dollars ARP money. We want some of that money to go for a solution so that the jail is no longer the de facto detox center. So we we had then a big gathering at Potawatomi Park and the were you there? Not okay. You made it other. And the um the sheriff was there he said we need this. The CEO of Oklahoma said we need this and we'll be at the table. The health department officer said we need this and we'll help plan and Andy Castellani from the county commissioner was there we need this and I'll work to get the money. And after about another six or seven months of wrangling and implementing, we got $2.7 million from the city and basically a match from the county and basically a match from the city to build a crisis response center. And uh, then the health department did planning. Oakland is going to take the lead. Beacon is in a space of Beacon and they're hoping it will open in March. And so it's a step. And, and Oakland, in the meantime, has also gotten a grant to develop a mobile unit. It's also in process. So that when we have somebody in mental health crisis, a substance abuse crisis, a mental health specialist and peer folks can be sent to engage them instead of law enforcement. And if they can't resolve it, they have a place to go that's not the jail or the ER. So we went from mass incarceration to a specific solution, and it was work. <laughs> We had to get 300 people. We had research actions, meeting with public officials to find out are they open? What's the possibility? Then a big event where they made a public commitment and then continue to work that they actually follow through. Okay, And now we're in the implementation. And a lot of times that's difficult. What we're shifting to now, that's all one-time ARP money. Now we're working at a state campaign to get, and the Behavioral Health Commission, this is awesome. It's a, it's a top-down, bottom-up, outside-inside game. As the Behavioral Health Commission, the Division of Mental Health and Addictions uh, helped shape that. They wrote an awesome report, which basically says we do not have a mental health system in, in a structure in Indiana, and we need to build one. It's not about fixing; it's about building it. And we and 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 they have funding mechanisms that they're proposing. 
including a dollar a month user fee on phones, which would generate, that's how we fund 911, would generate $90 million in the state of Indiana to move us forward. And we have some Republican legislators for a variety of reasons, partly personal, they are advocates, and we're trying to line up Eli Lilly, Cummins, the Sheriff's Association, the Prosecutor's Associations, the Bishops, the, you know, the, uh, all saying the same thing. So that in the next, it's not the big lift. In Indiana, to get a, dollar, a tax, it's huge. But even if we don't get the full thing, that will help us understand what's going on. And we're trying to say we could be a different Indiana, an Indiana that invests in people, um, as, as opposed to just giving tax breaks. So that's a little bit about our work. Um, I'll say um, a couple things. I, I'm going to send, if people are interested, the way ideally it works is we have a team of people in a congregation who want to be um, like, you could call whatever you want to, the Bacon Indiana team, or you could say the public justice ministry or the community change team who are figuring out what do we care about and how does that connect with we can know we we can do certain things here, like maybe you know maybe chronic homelessness is an issue that St. James cared about, and in our network, folks from Our Lady of the Road, folks from First United Methodist, folks from Broadway Christian Parish, these are all people who care about chronic homelessness, and there are some real solutions. For example, a low barrier intake center. What they're going to require, they're going to require power <laughs> because they're not just going to happen on their own. So ideally, there's a little team at a congregation that engages, that is, is part of the broader network, that engages its own congregation. What, are, what do we care about? What do we want to do? What do people here care about? And at key moments, is able to engage people. I'm going to send this around. If you'd like to, I can put you on our, our, our email list. I can't guarantee how good that uh, you'll be, uh, how regularly you'll be informed, but it's a one way. You can talk to Steve if you're interested in like, hey, the St. James want to create a team. We're right now, I'm just going to very briefly, we have a 501c3, that's faith in Indiana. We have a 501c3, four, our acne, our political arm, because we know who's in, we can work hard on an issue, but who's in power makes a big difference. So we are working for the first time we've endorsed some candidates, Heidi Bidinger and Don Westerhausen, commissioner, and, and we're making this afternoon, we're making get out the vote calls <laughs> because it's a map, it's a numbers game. Uh, she's an Heidi's an amazing candidate. It's, it's the difference between somebody who cares about public health and the environment, for example, and somebody who gets money from the Koch brothers. That's the difference. That's the choice right now. And the last time the election was decided by 424 votes. So we're just making phone calls, making sure that people who often sit out the midterms but who are sympathetic to these concerns are actually voting. Okay. So um, we're also we're also uh, Working, it's a little bit of a historic accident that a 60 year old white guy is the organizer of Faith in Indiana and Sinclair County. We are working to raise $75,000 with three year commitments to hire a black organizer. We have a guy who's doing an internship that we're really excited about. And we can have a black church coalition that's really strong. If you're interested in learning about that and being part of that fundraising campaign, I have some brochures here. And then February 11th, we're going to be bringing um, 600, 800,000 people together in Indianapolis, kind of like a statewide action with legislators, with key people to, to advocate for this funding for crisis response. So those are some next steps where, you know, St. James could be involved. Get out the vote, money campaign, February 11th, build a team, maybe, you know, one of the first things might be a meeting with Sinai Synagogue. They've been very active, but they're reforming their team. There are seven people there and 
I'm getting to know them. And I think one of the first things they'll do is they might have a public me a meeting for their congregation about mental health and the crisis response system and what are the stories among us so that we get to know what people care about and then we learn about together about what's going on and what the options are. And you know, we don't need everybody, but we need enough people and then we need focused strategic engagement, you know, where we build access. How do we get access? <laughs> you know, one time, I mean, the fact that we are who we are at this point, we tend not to have problems with access, but we sometimes still do with Mayor James, for example, so we had to, at some point, have a press conference on the step of the church and say, you know what, the mayor's not talking to us. The next day he gets a phone call. <laughs> you know? I want to just close connecting us back to our faith. We started out by talking about faith things. I, um, I oh, it's 1016. Okay, I'll make this very quick. <laughs> I think every pastor has one sermon, maybe two. And I would, if we had more time, I'd say, what was Jesus' sermon? And you know, love your enemies, your, uh, your neighbors, yourself, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, your strength, your mind. You, I think his one sermon is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And my daughter would say, That is so churchy. And a Baptist, Anabaptist, Clarence Jordan from Pointy Farms, uh, 40s racially integrated community in Georgia. New Testament scholar, he said the real translation of that, repent. It doesn't, we tend to think. Say you're sorry for your sins and your soul will go to heaven. That's how we interpret that. That is so far. He said, no, repent. Change your whole way of thinking. For example, if you're white, you're all right. No, change your way of thinking. We need to be in solidarity. This, this system is messed up. It's not working for any of Change your whole way of thinking. There's a new possibility. Change your whole way of thinking because God's new order is breaking in right now and you can be part of it. That's the kingdom of heaven is breaking in right now, and you can be part of it. And so that's really the work of faith in Indiana. I also say, you know, the core story in the Old Testament, I think Jesus has carried that on. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. They did not teach me about that in seminary. <laughs> they did not teach me how to mobilize a group of people and engage Pharaoh, figure out how to have access, figure out how to have a conversation. Figure out what language he listens to. Figure out how to how to cut an issue so that we can engage Pharaoh, so that he can actually do something, so that our people are more free and healthy. They didn't teach me that. They taught me how to parse verbs. They taught me how to do a, a, a sermon. They taught me how to do pastoral care. They did not teach me how to go to Pharaoh and say, "Let my people go." And that's what faith in Indiana is trying to do. It's like, how do we learn together to do that? To engage. Policymakers' decision. It's not the whole thing. We need say Margaret's house. We need habitat for humanity. We need, and we also need to bring our voices together and effectively engage political decision makers. So that's our work. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And um, yeah, a lot of more people need to hear this conversation. So we'll make this available for a podcast. Um, but thank you, and I think it will be intriguing as we're trying to think about the broader we to think about our, our, you know, role in this broader work. So, um, thank you so much. Right.